0: That's the equivalent of a plane taking off from Heathrow and then landing on the Thames. Now, actually, when you first look at that picture, you're going to think exactly as a number of you said, wow, oh my goodness, what's happening there? But that is a good news story. It was an amazing good news story. The the, the plane took off. Uh, It was uh, U.S. Airways Flight 1549. It hit a large flock of birds, and both engines failed. And you can imagine the pilot's instrument panel flashing away with all the warning lights. And he was able, using these amazing modern warning light systems, to glide that plane across New York to the river, land it on the river, all the warning lights flashing in front of him, using those warning lights to land the plane safely. And in fact, none of the the people died. They were all safely rescued. It really was a very, very good news story. And in fact, the the passage we're looking at today is is a similar warning on a sort of global scale. It's going to show us something that we need to act on, exactly as those warning lights on on the pilot's instrument panel were flashing away, warning him of what was going to happen if he didn't act swiftly. That's exactly what we're going to see today. We're going to be looking at a passage that shows us what happens after we die. Now, this is a really difficult thing to talk about in our culture. I've found preparing this sermon really difficult, I've got to tell you. We're not comfortable talking about death. I found it really hard to prepare it. I mean, the passage wasn't forced on me. I chose it because I think it's important that we think about this kind of stuff and and look at it. But I can see why it's not often talked about because it's really hard to talk about. When people are asked what they think happens after they die, their their answers often go like this. They might say, I don't know, which is obviously very honest. They might say, if we've been moral people, we go to a good place. If we've been immoral people, we go to a bad place. Which, which isn't that satisfactory as an answer, because what if our best efforts aren't enough to get us into the good place? And also, morals change over time and over cultures. What is the standard that makes a good moral? It's very difficult to, to go down that route without it starting to come apart after a very short time. Or people will say, you know, we just cease to exist. And I think that's based quite naturally on what we see when someone does die. It's as if they've ceased to exist. But throughout history, humans have been convinced that death is not the end. Think of the pyramids or other great tombs where people were buried with their possessions to help them into the afterlife. And the Egyptian kings were buried with their gold and their beautiful jewels. Sadly, most of that was then stolen some time afterwards. Not much help to them. And uh, the Saxons, uh, even in this country, in the Saxon era, uh, they were buried with huge amounts of personal possessions. Back in 1938, uh, an entire ship was discovered in Suffolk, buried with a guy who owned the ship and all his possessions. They had uh, gold and silver, jewellery, bowls, cups, weapons. Weapons seemed an odd thing to take. So they, they believed that something was going to happen in the afterlife and perhaps a long piece of wood or a bit of metal will help them fix any problems they might come across. That seemed very odd to me. But anyway, it's evidence that you know, throughout history, humans have thought that something happens after we die. It's not the end. And the Bible gives us a very clear picture of what happens after we die. It shows us that death is not the end. In fact, it's just the beginning. So I'm going to try and distill Christianity into its component parts, its basic component parts, so that we can get a clear view of what happens after we die. Firstly, though, here are some things you might have heard about Christianity. It's about trying your best. It's about being a moral person. It's about being good. It's about hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And actually, we'll see in this passage that I'm about to read that it's not any of these things. It's about relying on Jesus to save us. It's that simple. It's about relying on Jesus to save us, and we'll see that very clearly. I've called this sermon a tale of two futures, with God or without him. If you're exploring the claims of Jesus, or even if you're just here as an observer, it's a very good week to be here. Our passage will take us to the very heart of the Christian message and the reason that Jesus came to earth as a human, The passage is written by a close friend of Jesus called John. Towards the end of John's life, after Jesus had returned to heaven, John had a whole series of visions, very, very precise, clear visions of what was going to happen in the future. And one of the things he saw was the last judgment, and we're going to read that in Revelation chapter 20. This is one of the the most shocking passages in the Bible, but it is important that we look at it, because it describes something that's actually going to happen. It starts with a scene that's really hard to read before it moves into describing something wonderful. So, so do bear with me as we read through it. It does get better. It starts, as I say, in a pretty shocking place and then moves into a sort of a wonderful future hope. So we just need to read through it until we get to that part. And then just like the pilot of that aeroplane, we will look at how we can act on the warnings that are contained in this passage. So if we turn to Revelation chapter 20, it's verse 11... And we're going to be reading through to chapter 21, verse 4. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, to chapter 21, verse 4. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. "'according to what they'd done. "'And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. "'Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, "'and they were judged, each one of them, "'according to what they had done. "'Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. "'This is the second death, the lake of fire. "'And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, "'he was thrown into the lake of fire. "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, "'for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, "'and the sea was no more.' So that is quite a shocking passage. And I want to look at it under three headings. A serious warning, a wonderful alternative, and a call to immediate action. A serious warning, a wonderful alternative, and a call to immediate action. So, this serious warning. In a way, what's so shocking about this first scene is that this is the natural destiny of all humans. None of us deserve to go to heaven. And that's very offensive to us. We've all got this sense of entitlement. You know, we do our best. We deserve to go to heaven. That scene makes it completely clear that that's not the case. The destiny of all humans is not going to heaven. We've actually all rebelled against God. And the Bible says very clearly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this scene shows the natural conclusion of that statement. But God intervened in human history by becoming a man, Jesus, and paying the price for sin to rescue us from this judgment. But if we don't want to take his offer of forgiveness, then this passage shows what happens. So why is it in the Bible? Well, it's a warning of the reality of what's going to happen. The Bible doesn't give much detail about hell, but what it does say, it says again and again. In fact, Jesus says more about hell than anyone else. It's a real place, It's really horrible, and it's everlasting. It's a real place, it's horrible, and it's everlasting. And C.S. Lewis once described hell as the greatest monument to human choice. The greatest monument to human choice. And he was right. So, what is this wonderful alternative that we saw in in the passage? And why is Christianity called good news if it deals in such shocking scenes? To answer that, we need to ask what happens to people whose names are in the book of life. And more importantly, how do you get your name written into the book of life? (coughs) Well, the way you get your name written into the book of life is to choose Jesus now in this life. You recognize that you can't please God in your own efforts. And as soon as you do that, he takes your judgment for you. Your judgment is then taken by Jesus, not by you. And that's why Christianity is such good news. We often dress it up with all sorts of complexities. And there are huge other benefits to being a Christian and knowing God. But at its core, the good news is that you will not take that judgment. Jesus has taken that judgment himself at huge price to himself. This is not a small thing. Jesus, in dying on that cross, took our judgment so that we don't have to take it. Our our names are then written into that book of life. That is good news. And I'll talk shortly about how difficult that can be to communicate to people and how we end up telling him all sorts of other peripheral things, which are great, but are not quite the same magnitude as that essential good news. And we can see how Jesus immediately accepts people who ask him to in a passage in one of the Gospels. And the word gospel itself comes from an old word that means good news. It's not obvious, but the word gospel means good news. When Jesus was being crucified, one of the other people being crucified at the same time Ask Jesus to remember him. That's all he did. This other man was a criminal. He'd done nothing of merit to, to, to make him worthy of anything at all other than crucifixion. And yet, if we look in Luke chapter 23, we'll get it up on the screen, one of the criminals said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. All it took was that man recognizing that Jesus could save him and instantly Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. So you can see that this had nothing to do with that man's efforts or his good deeds. He had no good deeds. He was a criminal. And it had everything to do with trusting Jesus to save him. So we've seen what Jesus saves us from and how horrendous that is. But what does he save us to? What is this new heaven and new earth that Jesus saves us to, and that John mentioned in that passage we looked at. John explains that God will renew earth and will renew heaven. He joins them together. That's why God will dwell with man. One of the things he says in that passage we just looked at is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will dwell with us. And the way that happens, as becomes apparent as you read on through Revelation, is that they become one. Heaven and earth are joined together. So God is truly with us, exactly as he was at the beginning, just as it should be. John also sees a city which seems to him to be made of gold and precious stones and crystal. And it's so bright that he can't see it properly. So his description is quite quite inadequate in many ways. But you're left with this incredible sense of, of the wonder and the beauty of what life is going to be like when God is with us in our midst, for real. The paradise described in the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning of the Bible, is restored to us. And in that new earth, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. It's, it's almost impossible to believe. We are so accustomed to life as it is. But the life that we face today is a mirage. It's not real life. It's the best we make it, but it's a mirage. What John is describing is real life, and it's coming. And there will be no more separation, because death will be conquered. And the best thing about heaven will be the presence of Jesus. We'll be face to face with Jesus, our God, who loves us and sacrificed himself for us. So what do we do with all this information? We're given all this information about what happens when we die. What can we do with it now? Everything I've said might make perfect sense to you. Or you might be feeling quite sceptical. And I wouldn't blame you if you were. Especially if this is the first time you've seen this. One's initial reaction is scepticism, very often. But whatever your reaction, I'd say there are some definite actions that need to be taken. Let me talk to the sceptics amongst us first. I think, in terms of an afterlife, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find better evidence of an afterlife and what it'll be like than the evidence that's presented in the Bible. It's very coherent. We've hardly scratched the the, the surface of this topic. There is a lot more to find out. Or you could simply reject the idea that there is an afterlife and just say, well, we cease to exist when we die. The thing with that is that Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven, and his followers saw him after he'd risen from the dead. And that's all very well documented in the Bible. And the Bible isn't one long book, which one guy wrote. It's made up of lots of different books, written by lots of different people, but it's incredibly coherent. It hangs together seamlessly. All these people that were with Jesus, heard his amazing claims, saw the way he lived, all the miracles he could do, Saw him rise from the dead, they believed that he had come down from heaven and was able, therefore, to tell us what it was like in heaven. So, that does take some explaining if we're going to satisfy ourselves that nothing happens after we die. So, whether you accept that or not, I would say to you, just at least be open to the possibility that it's true and look into it. It's not just that Jesus can help us sort out our lives now and make us happier although he does do that. We need him to save us from the coming judgment. Please don't let this opportunity pass you by. Spend the time necessary to satisfy yourself that either it is true or it isn't true, but at least be intentional about that. Come to your conclusion based on the best information you can get hold of. Come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk further with you. And what if you're already a Christian sitting here today? How can we make best use of that warning? I think there are probably two or three concrete steps we can take. We can research it further so that we fully understand it. And I would recommend this book called Heaven and Hell by a man called Edward Donnelly. It pulls together the various parts of the Bible that deal with this subject into a quite easy-to-understand narrative, and I found it very helpful. And then the the other side of it is how do we communicate Once we've understood this and perhaps researched it a bit further ourselves and found out about it, how do we then communicate it to people? Because it's not easy to do. One thing we can do is look at Paul's conversations in in Acts, where the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' early followers, was spreading the message of Jesus and the salvation that's available through Jesus. And you can see sometimes he talks to people about the judgment. He does mention it sometimes, but he doesn't mention it other times. So that doesn't really give us a template we can follow in all situations. It's something we're going to need to pray about way up and act. And Peter, in one of Peter's letters, again another follower of Jesus, we can get this up on the screen. Peter says, We should always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I'll just read that one more time. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So gentleness and respect is the way that we're to do it. But if we never tell people about hell, it's a bit like being on the Titanic. You remember the Titanic, that huge ship uh, in the early 1900s, sailing from, from England to America and hit an iceberg halfway across and sank with huge loss of life. So if we never tell people about hell, it's a little bit like being on the deck of the Titanic with some kind of foreknowledge, knowing that this iceberg is going to hit us. And telling, telling people, you should put these life jackets on. But explaining your reason as things like, that you're going to look good wearing them. Or they're really well made. I mean, people, if you saw any of the films, they would dress up in their dinner jackets for dinner. They'd look smart. It was a lovely environment. No one's going to want to put on a life jacket simply because it's going to make them look good. You're going to have to tell them that there's a coming catastrophe and that this life jacket will, will save them or at least help them have a much better chance. So that's a completely inadequate analogy. Of course, all analogies are inadequate when we come to talking about God. But the point I'm trying to make is that unless we give people the full picture, they are not being able to make a, a properly informed decision. And knowing what the future looks like. So the third thing in terms of concrete action, knowing what the future looks like, we must surely pray with urgency that God will choose to save these people. We're not responsible for other people's other people's decisions. That's God's responsibility. But Jesus did say to us that we should make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's a very well-known saying out of uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Right at the end, Jesus appears to his disciples and says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he tells them to go and make disciples and tells them to instruct those disciples to observe everything that he's commanded them. And Jesus did talk a lot about the reality of heaven and hell. So that must have been part of what he expected his followers to do in terms of passing on that message. I know how difficult it is to face this reality. I'd rather not talk about it. But because it's going to happen, we should make use of this warning. And this is especially the case because a sanitized version of the gospel, of the good news, can't easily compete with modern life. What do I mean by that? If we present the good news simply as the chance to have our prayers answered or to have a sense of peace or to have God's blessing on us, then a lot of people will feel that their lives are pretty much okay as they are. I mean, our, our, our culture, our society is pretty good at supplying most of our, most of our needs, certainly our material needs. And the way we're set up as a culture and the advertising industry, we're led to believe that if things aren't right today, they will surely be right at some point in the future when I've bought that next car or got that next job or whatever it might be we need to give people the full picture so they can make an informed choice so as we conclude today and I'm standing here thinking why did I choose this passage when I could have talked about David and Goliath or Jesus walking on the water Um, what can we draw from all this what can we draw from all this well it's clear that God is against all sin And yet we all sin. We do all sin. And that's why God himself had to provide the answer to that problem. He paid the price for our sin by becoming a man and taking our judgment for us on the cross. So unless sin is paid for by Jesus, it sticks with us. And if we go into judgment day with our sin, we'll fail that judgment. No one can stand up before God. We need the protection of Jesus. And what the passage clearly shows us is that it's nothing to do with being good or trying harder. Our good deeds and our bad deeds, they weren't weighed in a balance. That's not what we read. Putting our trust in Jesus to save us is what saves us. And it's that that gets our names into that book of life. And knowing what he had to go through to save us really does transform our lives. Once you realize what Jesus had to go through to save you, you just want to follow him more and more. No, Look, it's a difficult topic, and I've said that several times now. No one wants to hear a fire alarm in the middle of the night. But if it really is a fire, then you're going to be very pleased you heard it. And for me, that's, that's the kind of conclusion I've come to with this difficult topic. No one wants to hear a fire alarm if there's not a fire. It's a pain. But if there is a fire, then that fire alarm is probably the best thing you ever heard. And although I mentioned the Titanic just now, and how we would have to give people full explanation of what's coming in order for them to take action I'm not really talking in those terms at all, the Titanic would have been a choice between between death or being a shipwreck survivor (laughs) which isn't very good either but here we're talking about the choice between everlasting separation from God or everlasting life with him and it really doesn't sound like much of a choice when you put it in those terms everlasting life with him Could I have the band up, please, as we just wind up? And could I have the prayer team up as well, please? Everything starts with prayer. Jesus said that without him, we can do nothing. And this has been a very difficult sermon to prepare and preach. But if God is speaking to you about any of this, then do come and pray about it, anything at all. I know that we've covered a lot of ground this morning quite rapidly, and this wasn't intended to be an in-depth Bible study on these topics. That's something you need to kind of go away and do yourself to get really familiar with it. But I really would encourage you to get prayer. If, if you're not a Christian today and you'd like to pray about that, these people are very, very good at praying about that sort of thing. Or come and talk to me at the end. If you are a Christian today, I'm sure that you're thinking of people, I know I'm thinking of people who don't know Jesus. And what is the best way for me to communicate that to them? It's just not obvious to me. It really isn't. There's a sense in which you can end up putting people off it by saying it too often. And I think we really do need the Holy Spirit's guidance and wisdom in how we present this to people. So if that's something that you're thinking about now, come and pray about that. Often if we pray about things straight away, we we kind of tackle the the issue while it's still fresh in our mind and we can take some action. Or come and chat with me afterwards. As I said, I'd be very happy to talk further about any of this. Let me finish with another quote from C.S. Lewis. You're probably aware that the Narnia Chronicles are based on the message of the Bible with Aslan, the lion, representing Jesus. And there are seven books in that series, and the last one is called The Last Battle. And right at the end of The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis ends it like this, with Aslan who's been speaking to them. And it says, As he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I think Philip would be proud of me there, keeping my, <laughs> just about keeping my together. But really, this is, so, this is so profound. It's so profound. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are. Lord God, you diagnosed the problem and the problem was with us and you gave us the solution. Jesus, we're so grateful to you for that. Lord, we love you and we just want to know more of you, Lord God. Amen.